If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out. Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's interview is with Dr James Chetwood, a lecturer in medieval history at the University of Hull and an expert in personal names in the Middle Ages. Our content director, David Musgrove, Put in a call to him to find out more. We have some bonus content with this podcast, which is available exclusively on our website. So if you'd like to know the most popular names in the 11th and 14th centuries, and to hear some of the ruder names that Dr. Chetwood has uncovered, go to historyextra.com forward slash exclusive hyphen podcasts. 
please be aware that this bonus material does contain some graphic language. Today, I'm talking to Dr. James Chetwood, who is currently lecturer in medieval history at the University of Hull. James is a historian and linguist whose research focuses on language and social history of the medieval period from around about 700 to 1300, with a particular focus on personal names and naming patterns. Uh, and his thesis, his doctoral thesis, uh, with a brilliantly uh, brilliant title, Tom, Dick and Leofrich, The Transformation of English Personal Naming Circa 800 to Circa 1300, uh, is brilliant. So, James, thank you for joining us. No problem. Thank you. Yeah, nice to know someone other than my mum's read it. So that's <laughs> We're going to uh, talk about uh, talk about uh, your research in uh, in a bit of detail. But first, how do you go about studying personal names? What some um, what, what sort of resources do you look at to to, to drill into that? Oh, good question. Um, f- at this period, it, it's it's tricky, really, because there's not um, sort of a set of uh, consolidated records of people's lives and people who who lived so you're really looking through any type of document that just happens to have a list of names uh, and those change throughout the period I look at so I, I start in the sort of early medieval period um, from around the uh, 7th 8th century and actually the most common source of names are things called confraternity books or Libri Vitae and they are um, essentially books of, of lives of um, people connected to a religious foundation of some sort, so usually a monastery. So um, one of the ones I've looked at in detail is um, from Durham, um, but there's a number of others from from uh, around England in um, Newminster, in Winchester, uh, and then another one in uh, Thorny Abbey, which is just after the conquest. Um, and these are essentially just people's names written down in a, in a book or a manuscript uh, um, to, to remember people who have lived, usually they're monks, but they could also be benefactors or uh, and also they usually have lists of um, kings and queens and bishops and abbots and that sort of thing. Um, as you go through the period um, um, from sort of the 11th century, 10th, 11th century onwards, you get more things that are sort of administrative records. So uh, things like Doomsday Book, um, but other records, um, the Winton Doomsday, which is a similar type of um, record of people and uh, uh lands that they owned and tax that they owed, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and then as you get through to the 14th century, there's loads, loads more uh, records. Um, but the, essentially what I'm looking at is a, a set of completely different records than trying to pull them all together um, and use uh, the names as the sources themselves, if that makes sense. But um, the prerequisite is there has to be a list of names and there has to be quite a lot of them. So um, so let's let's go into into the story a bit. So uh, you, you start your research, as you said, uh, around about the year 800 um, uh, and sort of setting the scene. That's that's England in the year 800 is, is about to enter a period of, of some turmoil with the with the, um, the, the Viking incursions and, uh, and that sort of thing about to happen. And, and, to, and to be clear, your research focuses on England or what's what is now England exclusively rather than the other constituent parts of the of Britain? Yeah, um, obviously England at that time wasn't England uh, as it is now, but essentially, yeah. So uh, all my sources come from what we would now call England. Um, although one of the things I've tried to do quite uh, essentially the, the main aim is to look at how, how England compares to other parts of uh, continental Europe uh, and try and see the compa- see if there's any comparisons or contrasts that can be drawn between what's happening here and what's happening there. Um, so uh, although it does focus on... Uh, names that were recorded in in England. Um, I've tried to compare across um, uh, across regions as much as possible within that. And obviously, within English, um, defining an English name is a very difficult thing, as as I found throughout the period 
what is English changes a huge amount. Um, so there's never just English names in any of the sources I look at. There's names from all sorts of different um, uh, areas, um, predominantly um, people who lived in England, but some of them were obviously uh, migrants or immigrants from other parts of uh, Europe, uh, including uh, Ireland and Scotland and Wales uh, and um, other parts of continental Europe. Okay, we'll, we'll get on to uh, how you would uh, recognise those different sorts of names maybe in a mm. second, but I'm just going just gonna to quote a little paragraph from, from the start of your research, which, is, which I, th- I think is quite instructive. You say, it's widely agreed that in the early 9th century, the people of England adhered to traditional Germanic principles of name giving, uh, where diphthematic, I'm not sure if that's the connect pronunciation, mm-hmm. uh, compound names were created by combining two themes taken from the language of everyday vocabulary. So um, can you simplify that for us? What, what, what are we talking yeah, about? Yeah, there's lots of terms that are sort of tricky to define anyway because England didn't exist and Germanic is quite a problematic term. Uh, but essentially, um, Germanic languages are a family, of, uh, if you took look at it as the family of languages that um, uh, exist um, in, in the Germanic group of languages. English is what, one of those, um, but within uh, within that also sit um, West Germanic, uh, common West Germanic is the the precursor to to Old English, um, as well as um, Germanic languages in places like Germany and uh, sort of Frisia, uh, sort of uh, the Netherlands as we call it now. Um, and then and they also have Northern Germanic names in Scandinavia. But the principles they used of uh, of naming were essentially to combine two words and put them together, uh, and that's a very common way of creating. Uh, creating a name it's this, the, the the same process is used in um uh, in greek for example and um, but putting two elements of language and putting them together to create a uh, a name so uh, and usually those names uh, those themes those uh, name elements uh, would have had uh, a meaning that was um, initially at least uh, sort of understandable to the people using them one very famous um example is king ethelred whose name was made up of the theme Ethel meaning noble uh, and red meaning council. Um, so putting that together um, in theory, at least uh, in origin, um, gave the meaning noble council. So some common names that people might be familiar with are things like Leofwin. Um, Leof uh, is the, the precursor to the modern English word love, um, but it means beloved or a friend um, and win as well, I think. Uh, so Leofwin, uh, Eilf, Rich, um, Eilf meaning elf, um, rich meaning um, riches um, and elf red as well. So what the the the, the way it worked was that um, the num the number of themes that you could create names with was limited, um, but by combining them in lots of different ways meant you could create a huge number of names. So obviously, elf rich, elf red, and and layoff rich and layoff red uh, are using a small number of themes, but by piecing them together, you get a, a larger number of names. Yeah, I gotcha. And was that yeah. so? So is that uh, a similar sort of process that was going on uh, across the channel then in in the Low Countries and in Germany? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, for example, uh, William, um, the common uh, modern English name William, comes from a, a common West Germanic. Um, name formed of themes um essentially which were Wilhelm which in, in German exists as Wilhelm now those two themes also existed in old english in a slightly different form but we have pre-conquest people um uh, named using the same two themes so this the themes in those in both sort of language groups um had 
usually had similar meanings and were and were almost uh, could, could be deemed cognates. So had the same meanings uh, and were, were usually formed in the same way. Didn't necessarily mean you came up with exactly the same names, but quite often the themes which they were created with um, were were originally the same. Okay, um, and you, you mentioned uh, sort of the North Germanic languages and the Scandinavians, and and that sort of brings in the the, the Vikings a little bit there yeah. in that sense. And um, you, you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, but um, there is a the tradition in uh, in that language in that language group of having uh, patronymic names, so they they have to have son or daughter at the end of their of their names. That is that not a, a theme that we see in uh, in the Old English? We. Uh, this is one of the things that uh, I was trying to look at, um, uh, although it's only part of what I've been looking at. But yeah, um, the process of of creating patronymic names or, or by names that refer to a uh, another member of the family uh, is actually quite a, a later phenomenon, at least in the period I'm looking at. So actually, one of the key things about names in the in the sort of 700, 800s is that people only had one name, so they didn't have. Um, uh, a by name or a systematic by name or surname added to it like we have today so my name's james chetwood um the chetwood bit wouldn't exist i'd just be james um yeah. and this is perhaps one of the reasons why people uh, had uh, a wider variety of names you have a wider variety of names uh by having a wider variety of names you didn't need to have a surname um and that's the same in scandinavia actually so the development of by names uh both as nicknames uh, or nicknames and relationship names, including uh, parental uh, patronyms and matronyms, um, starts to to come in around the the tenth century. Uh, so in Scandinavia that happens, and that happens in England uh, as as well at the same time, as well as on the continent. Um, if that makes sense, yeah, it does absolutely. But yeah. so I find that very interesting because I'm just I was just thinking um, b- before I, before I got on to you. Um, think, thinking about prehistory, actually, and about um, theories that uh, that uh, archaeologists have about, say, in the Neolithic period, when uh, it's assumed that there was some sort of settlement of, of incomers coming in, and they built monuments uh, in the landscape, and those monuments were deemed to sort of be in some way linking to the ancestors. They put the bones of the ancestors in there, and then they, and that was all part of, of an idea of, of linking that group of people with that bit of land. So using the ancestors um, and uh, one would imagine, I mean, the, the question of the Anglo-Saxon Germanic settlement into England is 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 a thorny one, and it's not clear mm-hmm. as to exactly what happened there. But you you would imagine that if, if there were groups of people who had uh, fairly recently come to an area, they would want to stress their legitimacy to be there, and, and a way to do that would be through some sort of ancestral naming situation. That's a very long-winded idea that's uh, that's that's very ill-informed. But is there is there nothing nothing in that? We do have evidence of group names um, for a group of people. So sort of perhaps you might want to call it a clan name or a, uh, an extended family unit. Um, and this is how, one of the things that I think changes. The way that families and sort of communities are built and structured changes, which changes the way people use names. Um, so we do have evidence of um, uh, of family names, uh, in a sense, referring to a family group, but there's not applied in the same systematic way um, and when we see names listed down um, we don't see names listed as a surname or, a, a, or alongside a first name it's just a name so they would be uh, Leofwin or Eilfrich or Leofrich um, and you wouldn't have a, uh, uh, a surname added to it. Okay. In this period anyway and, sure. and one of the key things actually I should mention is that what the the system of creating these diathematic names is not just to mean that there's there is a uh, a limited 
uh, sort of, no, there was a limited repetition of names amongst people who were alive, but actually also um, what we found out or what I've looked at in the different family trees and genealogies is that there's very, very little repetition of names throughout um, a family as well. So today you might name your uh, your son or daughter after a grandparent or an uncle or an auntie. Um, what we see is this doesn't happen, at least not in the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries. People try and avoid naming children after living relatives um for, which might be to do with very different reasons but there, there's no um passing down of names in the same way as there is today and that's one of the key things that changes over the period that i look at names yeah and you, you mentioned um in your in your research uh, a theory by um somebody called uh regine lejean who, who mm-hmm. suggested that, that it was that, that was due to some germanic belief in the indivisibility of body and spirit and, and a fear that you would be in some way, I don't know, doing a disservice to your ancestors if you took their name, I suppose. Yeah, I think there is something to that. Um, although I don't think that can be the only reason. She she explains that there is this idea that, yeah, people having the same name as someone else is essentially stealing their, or it's always like stealing their soul, stealing their, their essence and their individuality. Yeah. Um, but I think, but there's also a, um, she also explains that she thinks this this changes as Christianity takes over from Germanic paganism. Um, and we do see some changes that happen at that point, but actually this attempt or the the, the, the system of of keeping names as individual as pot- possible and, and unrepeated uh, lasts a long time into the Christian periods in, in various parts of, uh, of Western Europe. Uh, and a lot of people in places like France um, never became pagans. Um, they were always Christian, but they still used this, this Germanic system of diathematic naming. So it doesn't quite work, um, I don't think. So we have to look at other reasons for why this change took place. Okay. And then just just one other thing on this. Um, g- going back to the, the, the Scandinavians again, I'm afraid, they, they mm. have these, some of them have the exciting nicknames like, you know, Skull Splitter and Hairy Breaches and things like that. Do we do we not see anything um, of, of that in uh, in these early names? Um the names that I've looked at, not not early, uh, not very early, but we do see see these coming in over the period. So I think you start to see a sort of more systematic use of by names or additional names, uh, including nicknames, from the the tenth century onwards. Ninth, tenth century, we start to see them coming in. Some of them are very fun. Some of them are very boring. But um, so uh, skull splitter. There might have been tenth uh, century people called. John's not John, but the Elfric Skull Splitter. I haven't right. found any, but I found some with some interesting by names. Okay, maybe we'll come back to that yeah. uh, uh, later on. Um, and then by names would also be um, potentially occupational based. I, I yeah, so the, yeah. there are four uh, key types of five key types of by names, if I can remember them. Um, so there's a relationship by names, so they may be patronymic or referring to a, a father, but also potentially a mother, or sometimes uh, another relative, uh, or just another relationship they have with someone. Um, then there are nicknames, so nicknames just as we use them today, yeah. uh, essentially uh, made up names to do with someone's uh, characteristics or life. Uh, there are uh, locational names based around a location of where you live or where you've come from um, or a location within uh, the landscape. Um, which ones haven't I done? Uh, occupational names referring to uh, uh, what what that person does for a living, but it might also link to where they're from. So if if the uh, where they live, if you're um, if you're the priest, you might be called the priest, and you might know that that person lives in the church because or next to the church because that's the 
names can tell you more than one thing. That's sort of the, the situation sketched out in the year 800. Now, we're going to leap on right to the end of your period. Uh, and, uh, uh, yeah. and 500 years later, um, completely different sort of picture, at least to my untutored eye in terms of these things. And, you know, uh, we've moved from everyone being called, you know, Lefwin or uh, or uh, Athelbert or whatever it is, to everyone being called Richard, William, Robert, those sorts of names. I'm talking men here. We should talk about women's names uh, yeah. as well, obviously. Um, um, so, so how how did that happen? So, there's a 500 year gap. Um, uh, uh, lots of things happen there. A very simple take would be that 1066 happened, and there was a big continental flood of influence in all aspects of society, and uh, that was that was sort of washed away old English names and brought in some some new names that uh, that sound sound different to me. You're going to tell me that's not the case, and it's far more complicated than that. So, uh, do your best. Yeah, well, apart, apart, thing it's it's that's a very sensible and logical explanation for lots of things that happen, uh, and partly because it's part of it is completely true. The 1066 does happen, and uh, there is an influx of names from the continent, and they do change the names that people are using. Uh, so that is correct. Um, I don't think it has much impact or, or any impact on this idea that people uh, were started to choose names that made people um, be like other people. So choosing names that other people had. I think this that thing has already happening uh, before uh, the Norman Conquest, uh, and also um, the names that we have that were in existence in the in the thirteenth and fourteenth century. Um, most of them didn't come over after the Norman Conquest because um, the very popular ones that had started to become popular by the 13th, 14th century were Christian names or, or religious names or of Greek, Roman or Biblican, biblical origins related to saints, essentially, or biblical figures. Um, and these names don't really start to become very popular until the, it's the early 13th century onwards. So actually we see uh, a number of shifts. First, we see a shift from Old English Germanic names to uh, continental Germanic um, names. So things like William, things like Richard, things like Robert, um, that are the same type of name, but from a different um, linguistic background, if that makes sense. So they're from, uh, they are Norman names in as much as they are um, uh, carried by Norman people, um, but they are linguistically Germanic. We also see lots and lots of common West Germanic sort of Norman names that uh, come over to England but don't become popular, like um, Anderbodo and Ebra and Herowig. These names also come over and die out in the same way as Old English names. Uh, and then from the 13th, 14th century, we also see a, a sharp increase in the number of Latin, biblical, Greek names um, related to um, uh, Christianity. So names like John, uh, um, names like Thomas, um, and names like... Martin and Michael and Stephen, that sort of thing. Very quickly, they start to be the names that are related to the sort of big um, Europe-wide saints um, in many cases, but also in some cases, very popular uh, local saints like Thomas uh, in England. So I was going to ask you that. So today, obviously, naming is driven quite often by celebrities. You know, you get loads of Davids when David Beckham's really good at football, that sort of thing. Um is that is that same phenomenon happening in our period, but more akin to saints and kings, I guess, than than footballers? Yes, yes, and no. I do think this idea that people are starting to name people after other people has that effect. Um, it's very difficult sometimes to work out who those people are because 
as soon as there are lots of people called Robert, which Robert are you naming it after? The initial influence um, of names like William, Robert and Richard uh, is quite clearly the um, the, the Norman uh, Dukes uh, and their family. So the, William the Conqueror's brother were Robert and Richard and these were very popular names in Normandy uh, and they become very popular names in England. Um, but obviously Robert and Richard were never kings of England. So actually what I think is happening is um, there's a sort of level of uh, of society that's got a lot of power and influence over um, people in their locality, sort of local landlords. And as these names start to be borne by uh, sort of important people in local areas, initially they start being taken on by um, just normal normal English people in those areas. Um, so Robert and Richard become very popular, but Henry doesn't actually become that popular till much, much later, um, even though there are... Uh, kings, very important kings called Henry. Um, John becomes very, very, very popular, um, but no one liked King John. So it's not quite as simple as naming it after the king. I think you are naming them after some people, but not necessarily the most important one, if that makes sense. I think it, there's more local and regional uh, elements to it. Um, as we get to the later period of the 14th century, um, I do think there is sort of a... Um, a, a Europeanization, centralization of the, at least the religious names that you get. So, um, I think John John's the most popular name in the whole of Europe, um, and that's a, a sort of a broader phenomenon than than someone being called Robert after their landlord. But um, as I say, it gets very difficult because as soon as there's fifty people called John in your village, you might be naming it after your cousin John or your uncle John or your I don't know John the priest. That yeah, but there are certain sort of bits and episodes in history where everyone does seem to have the same name. Like there's a Matildas just you know everywhere for for a little while, and uh, and Williams and Roberts, as you say. So yeah, that that that, that, that must that must have complicated matters somewhat for for people. I'm just reminded actually. Uh, uh, so just thinking about the conquest, specifically in, in pre-conquest um, period, um, there were there there are some instances of people changing their names or at least having double names when they they come from Normandy to England. So I'm thinking of uh, Queen Emma changing her name to Elfgifu, I think. Is that, is that just a one-off or is that... Um, uh, is that, uh, is no, that we get that. Thing? That happens more often than you would think and it happens the other way around as well. But there is a... Uh, so despite the fact that in the, in the early period these names were cognate, um, the Old English names and Continental Germanic names had the same... Uh, name elements um, that you might be able to recognise. Clearly, by the 11th century, this wasn't the case. And the English names seemed very foreign to uh, people in Normandy uh, and vice versa. So Emma's one example who took the name Eofgifu or Alviva, um, uh, even though there was another, millions of Elvivas, which so it's not this idea that we're giving so her a name. another example there. If they, yeah. if that was, they, they dominated exactly. the story. And I think... Yeah, I mean, I know uh, Harold Godwinson had uh, uh, a wife called Elviva, I think. I can't even remember now. There's so many of them. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, so it shows that actually you're not, they're picking names to fit in, not to stand out, which is very different to what was happening 200 years later. So by giving her the same name as, as uh, uh, very, lots of other people in the same place at the same time, it's making her try and fit in. Um, Audric Vitalis um, is another famous example. He was called... Audrich, which is a, an old English name, um, and he he was born in the uh, early 12th century and he moved to um, a monastery in Normandy uh, uh, and took the name 
Vitalis because um, the monks there couldn't pronounce his his name, which seems unbelievable, but it, 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 that, that's what they said. Um, uh, there's also an, a, a, a case of uh, a young boy uh, who ended up being called Bartholomew Farn, a saint in his life. He was originally called Tosti, um, so the, the same name as the the brother of Hal Godwinson, uh, who was uh, who um, betrayed him uh, just before the Battle of uh, Battle of Hastings. Uh, and the young boy Tosti, uh, who was to be Bartholomew, changed his own name to William um, because all his friends were essentially taking the mick out of him um, because Tosti was such an unfashionable name. This was in the in the early early twelfth uh, century, so. Yeah, there's definitely an element of fashion. People had fashionable names and were naming children after other people. Uh, and in that case, um, that name had happened to go out of fashion quite quickly, so he chose chose a different one for himself. Presumably, this whole this this whole story does play into the the changing um, language itself, um, which obviously modifies substantially from from 800 to 1300. Uh, and you were talking about people being unable to pronounce foreign sounding names. I mean, that must have been quite a big issue post conquest, I would imagine. Um. Yeah, uh, we definitely see the name forms themselves change before before old English names are discarded. They they change in form um, before and after the conquest, uh, and this is where it becomes quite difficult to understand because most of this, a lot of the sources we have just after the conquest are um, French speaking scribes writing old English names down, which might mean that some names are simplified or transformed in the way they understand them. Um, but I think um, there's also been a change already. So names like uh, you mentioned, Eilf Gifu or Eilf Yifu, yeah. um, which is the traditional old old English form, uh, if, as it would have been uh, in uh, a diathematic name, uh, that had sort of transformed by the time of the conquest to something to Alviva, and the same with Leif Yifu had become Leviva, uh, uh, and uh, there we have a tendency to sort of transcribe or tra- sort of put these names back to what they would have been in the old English period, early old English period, when actually um, a name like uh, Le- Leofwin may have been Lefwin or Lewin. Uh, yeah. And actually we see names, uh, a lot of the names, that the only way we see names, old English names very often these days are in surnames. So um, we know, uh, someone called Lewinson is the son of someone called Leofwin or, or the, sort of the, the descendant of that name. So Lewinson is... Leofwin's son, um, but it had been already been contracted by the time it got put into a surname. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Most people, for most of history, stay in roughly the same place and roughly stay at the same social status. That might be a controversial thing to say, but actually surnames are, are a very good way of working out where someone comes from originally until around the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and there's not a huge amount of social mobility. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. 
Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. We should talk about women's names. I mean, we've talked about some, some women's names there. Is, there. is there any difference at all in the way things work between male and, and female names? And does that tell us anything at all about social attitudes? Um, I think the biggest thing we can tell from social about social attitudes is that women were less less important because we have far far fewer uh, women's names uh, written down. Uh, obviously, there were roughly the same amount of women as men uh, we could assume, but um, there are a fraction of the names, which is why it's been re- it was really difficult for me to do the same sort of quantitative <laughs> studies of names uh, of women because. Um, while I found sources of with sort of sometimes three thousand, sometimes a couple of hundred names. Uh, of men uh, those the, the equivalent of women would have been sometimes maybe 20 sometimes not none at all so a quantitative study of names before the conquest is very difficult um i think we can see similar processes in in as much as there is a, a contraction of uh, the naming stock before the conquest um around uh, a popular set of names from what we can see um and actually one of the interesting things some people have picked up on is that we see a slower switch to Norman or continental names after the conquest amongst amongst female names. So they hold women's names remain uh, um, sort of pre-conquest for a little bit longer. Um, why that is, we're not entirely sure. And that's one of the things that I would look at in, in more detail. Um, and I think uh, the big change that we see in men's names by the 14th century is that they're very, very concentrated. So, um, so in a ta- in, uh, for example, uh, I looked at a source in York where there's 800, 900 people and there's about 40 names shared across those 800, 900 people. And most people share about five names. So 50, 60% all are called the same five names, which is a huge amount of concentration uh, of, of names. We see that happen amongst women, but not to the same extent. So there's much more, much more variety uh, in the names that they're given in as much as the the popular names aren't as popular, but although there's a more creativity in the names that they get. Okay, so that must have been ridiculous in that case in York, where basically everyone is called the same name, and that's that's I guess where you need surnames coming in to differentiate people. This is uh, a it is ridiculous, but it's not uncommon. That's just the way it was, which is sort of why I wanted to look at the the, the change. So you go from in around seven eight hundred, everyone had a different name, to around thirteen hundred. 
1400 where everyone has the same name so there's obviously a big shift in the way people were choosing names whether people realized it or not um and it is ridiculous unfortunately that uh, the the idea that people added surnames to help uh, distinguish between people um is again it's very logical and it makes sense but it doesn't necessarily seem to be backed up by the evidence studies in france and on the continent uh, and from what I can see and what I've looked at, you you get surnames before you need them, and for people that don't need them. Right. So people with um, very uncommon names may have a surname, but people with very common names may not. If that makes sense. Um, so I think people are being given surnames and by names before they need them for different reasons. Um, and actually, it might be the other way around that once people have a surname, have surnames, it's easier to to discard some of the extraneous uh, given names, if that makes sense. Sure. Um, so at what, at what point, uh, if at all, it, would you say that most people have surnames? Uh, it depends what you need by a surname. So um, I think, and it depends where you are, um, that, uh, and in what part of society you, you're, you're in. So uh, I think we can safely say, that in the upper echelons of society, it happens a bit quicker that you all get a surname. Um, but, uh, and in lower echelons and also in sort of northern parts of the country, you're, it's a little bit slower. I think most people would have had a, a hereditary surname by around the 15th century of some sort or another. Um, but it goes through a process of sort of systematically applied by names. So a by name isn't hereditary it's something that you're given um during your life it may refer to your father but it doesn't necessarily mean that that name gets passed down so i my dad's called graham um so i would be james i might be called james graham's son but then my son would be called something jameson so it's not a surname as we know it so that systematic application of by names happens earlier uh, and it's uh, where people are given a name uh, a by name as part of their identity um and then um, at some point in the next sort of 150 years, that develops into a hereditary surname. But then both of these exist together. Even way after this, people are still getting um, sort of single-use single, single use by names, as, as it were, um, and we still get them today in the form of nicknames. Yeah. Just so do you, um, this, this is way after your period, but so when is, when, when is our actual, our, our naming structure that we have today, when is that established? Um, if you don't know the answer, don't worry about it. No, uh, I think so. The uh, in terms of um, uh, a given name and a hereditary surname, probably yeah. arrive around the the end of the medieval period. That's just about in place, and actually, that's when you can start tracking the um, uh, tracking surnames back to their their origin. Um, we know that some people uh, are are uh, with common surnames or or sort of are. Um, all descended from an individual with that surname. Um, yep. So I think everyone called Metcalf, they can work out where that the original Metcalf was in the 13th century in somewhere. in I think it's it's Lancashire or West Yorkshire, I can never remember. Um, okay. And it's almost passed down like a, um, I think it's the Y chromosome that gets passed down. And if you you can track it all the way uh, throughout their, their gene, that, 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 that gene pool, track it across that descendant. Um, so all, however many, 500,000 Metcalfs all come from the same point in, in the medieval period. Okay, good good for the Metcalfs. Um, I don't know why I know Metcalf. <laughs> um, <yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> let's hope there's some Metcalfs listening. Um, what about, um, you mentioned sort of uh, um, uh, higher born and lower born people. Is, are, there, um, are there names that are more associated with certain statuses in life that, uh, that you can see? Um, obviously, the occupational names are related to someone, and I think that would actually be when they are still being given as a as part of a, as a sort of creative process in someone's life, they very much would indicate their social status. Uh, some of these are ironic. So there you get people called King and Baron who are quite clearly not Kings or Barons. So it might be that they're very poor actually. So they've got a nickname that shows that yeah. um, they are very poor. Um, uh, and it might be something to do with their character, but obviously if you are someone called Tanner, that that shows that you have a job. So you're not the lowest of the low, you've got a profession, but obviously that's not quite as prestigious as a Smith. Um, but I th- if that makes sense. So a smith would be one up, a priest would be one more up. So actually they're very good tools at sh- uh, um, uh, indicating an individual social status. Um, yeah. But you're right that obviously once they become um, uh, hereditary, uh, we can see that most people don't, most people in, uh, for most of history, stay in roughly the same place and roughly stay at the same social status. That might be a controversial thing to say, but actually surnames are, are a very good way of working out where someone comes from originally, originates because most people stay in roughly the same part of the country until around the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and there's not a huge amount of social mobility. So yeah, there is there are patterns to do with that. I, I'm not an expert in, in that bit, but yeah, you yeah. can definitely see. Well, and just leading on from that, what about the question of uh, ethnicity or national affiliation or, or or you know saying that you're part of some sort of group how far do you see that i mean we talked at the start about surnames or names that were uh more uh, celtic in stock and and, uh, and continental in stock versus the old english ones how far can you see that sort of uh attribution yeah it's um names are both brilliant and terrible at indicating where someone is a uh, given names anyway as uh, given some uh, indicating ethnicity because they are they're very malleable i can you can call a child anything you want really um yeah. all, I, that's not true in some, actually in quite a few modern countries people uh, have a restriction on what you can call your children but uh i, I could call my child uh, a, a german name even though i'm not german my daughter has a scottish name and i am very very small a very small part of scottish my grandma was scottish she was from orkney but she ran away to the isle of Wight when she was 15 so very not scottish but she's got a scottish name um so you might assume that i'm more scottish than i am by my daughter's name uh and she she's not scottish at all but then and and that's so actually for the first couple of generations i think they're really good tools so in if you look at uh, the sources in sort of doomsday in the the late 11th century uh, maybe just after that we can quite clearly see uh norman names becoming in and we can sort of uh, look at an influence and the same just before the conquest we can see areas where there's a high level of scandinavian names uh, and you can say that there must have been some sort of scandinavian influence there but after a few generations it's very hard to remember what people were called i i don't it's hard. We can't really imagine what it was like, what the people were called t- 100 years ago until you look. Um, uh, I have family members. Uh, I looked at my family tree, people that I call Elspeth, which just seems like a completely um, uh, alien name to me. I never know. I'd never know anyone called Elspeth, but that was a, a, a common name. then. Uh, and so the, within a few generations, I think it's very difficult for people to remember 
what names were like before. So by 1150, particularly by 1200, Richard, Robert and Thomas are good old-fashioned English names in the same way they are, same way they are today. Um, and you wouldn't say that someone called Richard is is French now, but it's a French name in in in, in the 1100s. Um, so they're very good tools at working out in the short term if there's been influence from uh, of migration, uh, and but very quickly that that usefulness disappears. Okay, there's a bunch more questions I wanted to ask you, but we're running out of time. So there's just one more that I I really wanted to get to you on, um, which is this idea of uh, of the changing names showing changing uh nature of, of what should we say communality um over the period um and uh, a sort of a growth in in community and communal values towards the the latter part of your period am i right in that and and tell just tell me about that yeah no that i think that's definitely the case except what so very lots of things change a lot in 500 years that's that's what happens in history what i it seems to me is that there, there, there are clearly a lot of changes that happen in the way people live their lives. Um, but one of the key ones is where they live their ha- lives and who they live them with. In the six, 700s, settlements were, were very dispersed. So by and large, people would live in very small settlements with um, maybe an extended family group and maybe a couple of other extended family groups in close proximity. But essentially, there were li- people would be living uh, amongst small groups, uh, they weren't very connected to lots of people. From the 9th, 10th century onwards uh, in England, but also actually in most of continental Europe and actually in, in much of the, uh, um, the uh, islands of, of Britain and Ireland, people start, there are more people and they start to live closer together in what we now know as villages. Um, so um, more people living together in a much more um, intense fashion for various different reasons, um, um, but mainly because there was more people and they needed to create more food, more surplus uh, and uh, and that sort of thing. But ultimately, most people were either in a, uh, a nuclear settlement or in a much more cl- um, tightly inhabited area. So you might not uh, have immediate next door neighbours, but you might all be linked to the same church that you all go to. Um, so where Christian- Christianity does come in, I think, is that creation of a community that is ultimately based around a manorial system, uh, but also a parish church system. Uh, and the fact that people end up living, by the, particularly by the 12th, 13th century, uh, their lives uh, in full view of each other all the time, either in the fields that they're working to, to create food in, in shared common fields, um, uh, in the same communal spaces, going to church, that sort of thing, uh, all uh, having the same common landlord, creates a system where or creates a society where being like people is more beneficial. Whether you want to see that as a good thing is that, oh, yeah, community values and we want to, uh, we're all in this together, or whether you just don't want to stand out. Uh, but we see um, across Europe, but particularly in uh, in uh, but in England, because I've looked at it, um, a, a greater uh, propensity to, to try and be like the people in their immediate location, uh, and this, I the way I've I've seen it is that you people start to have the same names, um, and it's way more than people and people share the same name today, but to much less much lesser degree. Uh, I've talked about villages there, but the same thing applies in towns as well. That was Dr. James Chetwood of the University of Hull speaking to Dave Musgrove.
If you'd like to listen to the bonus content about the most popular and rudest names that Dr. Chetwood has found, go to historyextra.com forward slash exclusive hyphen podcasts. But again, please be aware that this bonus content does come with an explicit warning for graphic language. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back on Friday when Jonathan Fennell will be discussing the Second World War in the East. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.